Bitcoin, crypto bubbles, passive indexation. There's a lot of financial jargon out there. Old Mutual can help you make sense of it all and give you great advice to make the right decisions. If you've got a question or want to know how to get the most out of your money, call them on 0860 60 60 60 or speak to an Old Mutual financial advisor or your broker. Today's the day. Get great financial advice so you can do great things. Old Mutual is a licensed financial services provider. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. Welcome back to The Money Show. You're on here on air with you is Rufilo Moloto. I'm sitting in today uh, for the last time this week on behalf of Bruce Whitfield. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today is the day. Get great financial advice and do great things. And of course, as I said earlier, it's May Day today, Workers' Day as it's known around the world. Um, amongst the many rallies that we've been seeing across our country, we're definitely going to be taking a fantastic, insightful look at what's been happening in the labor market. We've got two labor um specialists coming to speak to us from the perspective of analysis and also from law, speaking about the big labor issues today. Also speaking to Stolo Makatini, co-founder and CEO at LinkedPro, uh, whose uh, tech platform uh, tries to connect companies uh, with freelance professionals, seeing how the gig economy is impacting today's web uh, workplace. Heroes and Zeros, as usual, on a Tuesday with Andy Rice, we'll be looking at some of uh, some of his ideas of the uh, advertising heroes and zeros out there. We'll have our Africa business focus. Um, speaking of Africa, we'll, our science today is the science of Africa's fashion, high-end clothing and luxury manufacturing industries and your other regular, of course, is your fast fact. And today's fast fact is who was the first finance minister since South Africa became a democracy? Who was the first finance minister since South Africa became a democracy? You're on The Money Show. 702 and Cape Talk, your number one news and talk station. It's May 1st, and although we've already begun to feel the winter chill on, of some cold fronts, we are now about to head into winter in earnest. Electricity consumption will see an uptick in the winter months, and of course, South Africa still, however, seems to be remaining on a knife's edge uh, due to uncertainty about coal supply at Eskom. Uh, now, this has massive implications, not only for us keeping warm, but of course for our productivity and for the economy. Uh, to, today, Eskom, of course, denies any, any statements that came out in the press last week, uh, that, uh, uh, or at least media reports, that load shedding is going to be be an issue from this coal supply issue. Uh, helping our heads get around this uh, is Chris Yellen, electrical engineer, energy analyst and MD at EE Publishers. Chris, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Uh, good evening and thanks for having me on your show. Indeed. Uh, well, I'm renting it. <laughs> Chris, uh, please won't you let us know, um, what are the latest developments on the coal supply uh, at Eskom? Yeah, we're likely to hear more tomorrow because there's a media briefing at 11 o'clock tomorrow at Eskom. Uh, but short and tall of it is uh, that Eskom is experiencing uh, coal shortages at at least seven of its power stations and possibly an eighth, all of them in Pumalanga province. Uh, and uh, to be frank, uh, these coal shortages are completely self-inflicted by Eskom uh, and really result uh, from uh, the problems uh, and the huge together optimum colliery scam uh, mm-hmm. with the Guptas. Uh, and secondly, the deliberate undercapitalization of Eskom's uh, tied collieries, uh, which resulted in a decline of output and quality. And these are now manifesting themselves now in terms of shortages at these power stations. And is it fair what Eskom is, is, is uh, sort of uh, adamant about, that this might not lead to uh, load shedding or definitely won't lead to load shedding? Well, I don't think one can say with any definite uh, uh, sort of certainty about these matters, but uh, I do believe, Eskom, that they are going to be taking uh, actions to procure uh, coal from here, there, and everywhere. 
Uh, but you've got to remember that this comes at enormous cost because this coal has to be trucked in. And coal that mm-hmm. is trucked in can cost uh, more than double uh, what it costs from a tied colliery uh, where the coal comes in by conveyor directly into the power station. Uh, and uh, ultimately, these uh, additional costs uh, incurred uh, are necessarily incurred, I guess, uh, but they do result from, uh, from their own uh, uh, lack of foresight uh, in, in, in policies and, and, and procurement in the past. Now, we understand from, from the utility that negotiations are ongoing with Optimum Coal Mines business practitioners. Can you just give us some background on what they are requesting from Optimum's perspective? Well, I only know what I read in the media and what I have read uh, in the um, City Press article uh, on Sunday. Uh, and that is that the, um, the, the business practice uh, uh, rescue practitioners at uh, Optimum are looking at various options to try and salvage this uh, mine. Uh, one of the options is to reduce its output uh, from 400,000 tons per month. That's the contractual obligation of Optimum, to reduce it uh, to 200,000 tons per month of coal. Uh, the second option is to double the price uh, of the coal right. uh, from uh, about 200 rand per ton up to about 400 rand per ton. Uh, this would uh, certainly help uh, in terms of the financial viability of the coal mine. But can, can we afford it, and is that even fair? Well, I think one has to ask what are the consequences of not having the coal. Mm. And the consequences of not having the coal are, of course, load shedding. Uh, And the cost of not having electricity in the economy is very, very much higher than the cost of this high-priced trucked-in coal. So when when push comes to shove, uh, it will make sense uh, to uh, truck in the coal almost at any cost because the cost of so-called unserved energy is very, very, very much higher than the cost of energy itself. All right, but Chris, now we just saw a milestone signing of supply contracts from the renewable energy independent power producers a couple of weeks back. Uh, how much of the supply shortfall could they take up, um, or, or and how quickly could their mm. supply actually even come on stream? Mm. Well, in the short term, the uh, 27 renewable energy IPP projects will not be able to contribute uh, to helping this coal crisis in the short term because... Mm. Uh, these contracts, uh, power purchase agreements, have only recently been signed. They still haven't reached financial closure, these projects. And once they do res- achieve financial closure, which could take six months or so, uh, it, it will take two and a half to three years before these, uh, uh, these plants, these renewable energy plants, uh, get commissioned and start delivering energy into the grid. So certainly not a short-term solution, but uh, let's say a medium-term opportunity. And so in, in your view, it is much more of a... a, a a financial or at least a, a governance issue than it actually is an engineering one. We'll certainly have Bruce yeah, back but, tomorrow. Uh, but may, may I just say that really it's a logistical issue, getting the right coal, the right quality coal, to the right place at the right time at the right price. Uh, and that is really the issue. Thank you so much, Chris Yelland. Valuable insight there from Managing Director at EE Publishers, Chris Yelland. Bruce will definitely be back tomorrow and will definitely, uh, after, the press conference from, after the press conference from Eskim, uh, try to get somebody from the utility on air to give us some clarity on this very, very serious matter. But for SMS now- us on 31702 or 31567.
It being International Workers' Day, it's important for us to focus on some of the issues facing participants in the labor force today. You would be having to have been living under a rock not to be aware of the tensions that have been facing and culminating in several industrial actions over the past weeks, never mind the past few years, not least of all the bus wage strike and SAFTU's response to the national wage with a stay away. Understanding the dynamics at play, at, uh, both from the legal perspective and the perspective of very le- real labor and business concerns, is imperative. And we have both those perspectives for you today. We're speaking to Puke Maserumule, Labor Law Specialist at Maserumule Attorneys, as well as Mamukheti Molopiane Mining and Labor Analyst at Creative Video, excuse me, Creative Voodoo Consulting. But first up, Puke Maserumule, thank you so much for joining us um, on the show this evening. Um, Puke, perhaps having spoken about the strikes and seeing, and seeing uh, some of what's been happening in the press today, start us off with uh, the minimum wage and the legal implications of the processes underway. Good evening, Rafila, and thanks for having me. Sure. Um, yes, um, obviously, there's always going to be an issue around the minimum wage, and the the primary reason is that, you know, from organised labour's perspective, remember that they, by and large, generally are able to negotiate for a higher minimum wage in their respective sectors than the three and a half national minimum wage. And the the first fear, obviously, I guess, from organized labor is that setting that kind of minimum wage may result in it being difficult for them to you know to negotiate for better minimum wages in their own sectors. So the I think the, what we see now is um, labor essentially pushing back um, because while the minimum wage is good in the sense that if you don't and that amount would be glad to earn it. Um, for organized, organized labor, it may well mean that um, employers may believe that if that is a national minimum wage and, and a trade union is asking for uh, 7,000 a minimum wage, then I can push back. So um, I'm not surprised at the response that we're seeing from from organized labor as it were. Indeed, but from a legal perspective, what are the what are the actual next steps that we can expect um, in terms of uh, ratifying um, and, and seeing seeing this through? Yes. Well, remember that initially the intention was that the minimum wage would be implemented with effect from the 1st of May, which would have been a symbolic thing, but there's been concern about whether or not there's been sufficient consultation and the matter has not been referred back for so the bill has been referred back for further consultation, whatever the amount. So I don't know, you know, obviously it's something that one will have to wait and see how um, organized employers respond to it and how organized labor respond to it and the kind of inputs which um, federations like, for example, SAFTU may want to make into the process, bearing in mind they're not part of NetLeg. So it's at the moment it's not really so much a legal issue as one for some form of bargaining between government, um, organized business, and and unions. Ultimately, and of course, government will decide on what the minimum wage is, and then everybody else, employers in particular, will have to comply with it. Excellent. Fair enough. Um, so p- perhaps other areas that I'd, I'd really be curious to hear your, your legal perspective on, um, the proposed changes to the Labor Relations Act to, uh, the, in terms of strike ballots, CCMA intervention, this would be quite important at a time like this as, as uh, organized labor is trying to push back. Indeed. Um, we must just be clear about this. You know, the, 
the amendment to the, the the initial amendment to the LRA, which required a ballot, went through already. No, it's not part of the current amendment. So mm. at the moment, in terms of the LRA, when a, re, a union registers um, and is registered by the Register of Labor Relations, its constitution must provide for a ballot in respect of any strike that the union may call. What the amendment is seeking to do is effectively make it compulsory for that ballot to be a formal and secret ballot for a proper record to be kept. And it must be kept for three years, including those ballots, even if they were electronic in in form. So if you think about how some of these strikes take place, if there's a show of hands, there has been a ballot, there's been a vote, uh, but there may not be a proper record of that vote. So organized labor is again pushing back um, to Indeed. say, you know, we shouldn't be made to to keep a proper record of all of this. Um, government effectively say, well, we need to be able to see that employees have been given a fair and proper opportunity to express their views. Indeed. So uh, this is, you know, there the, the was pushback the last time the amendments were made in 2014. And I think there is going to be another pushback because, remember, we're now going into the strike season. Um, and depending on when the amendment goes through, if it does indeed go through, what you can expect to see is employers would be advised to challenge strikes on the basis that the unions must produce proof that there was a proper ballot in the form of the ballot papers even if or whatever the, the dates are relating to the ballot so that they can determine for themselves whether indeed the majority of the employees voted in favor of the, of the strike. Well, that's got to be very positive from an equality perspective um, or, or at least from, from an equitable representation perspective. Are there any other positive uh, shifts of foot in the labor in the labor industry just with finally um, uh, speaking with respect to sort of uh, equality and equal pay? Yeah. Look, you know, we, we, we need to see a little bit of um, litigation coming through in this area. Um, so one can expect that there will be more and more people challenging employers seeking to find out what their rights are in relation to equal pay and equal treatment at the workplace. And, you know, employers will again be pushing back because if they pay everybody uh, the same and if they have to pay them more than what they previously did, obviously their costs will go up. But we've seen that um, I think the courts are more than willing now. If you look, for example, at the at the higher court case, which didn't go to the labor court, dealing with equality, um, which effectively brought an end to Mr. Lamberti's... Yes, uh, the pharmacy of, of, I was going to ask yes. exactly that, yeah. So you can see that equality is becoming a real issue and that people are taking it up and that the courts, again, are making it clear that you know what the Constitution provides for, which is giving effect to different types of statutes, must be respected by all, including big employers. And what about from a broader perspective for workers, you know, not necessarily individual to individual, but let's say restructuring and retrenchment rights? It is. You know, my sense is that we're not, we're not, you know, I know that talk around town is the South African economy is getting out of the woods and that, you know, things should get better. But, you know, if one looks at the kind of um, interactions that we are having with, with our clients who are employers, quite clearly, um, you know, the improvement is not to an extent where you can't expect uh, more restructuring and what inevitably that entails will be either 
job losses in the form of retrenchments, or it might be in the form of um, transferring parts of businesses, or it might even be in the form of employers making more use of either fixed-term contracts or making more use of labor brokers in the in the workplace. So I think those are challenges that we're going to see through, and they're going to probably manifest themselves as part of the negotiation process because we're now in that season where employers and unions are engaged in negotiations, and when the strike season truly begins around July, you might expect to see some of the issues involved, including challenges to restructuring, retrenchments, and transfer of business. That was great. Thank you so much, Puke Masrumule, Labour Law Specialist at uh, Masrumule Attorneys, calling in from Durban to give us some perspective, just to give a broader perspective on the industry itself. Mamokheti Molopian has been on the line. She's a mining and labour analyst at Creative Voodoo Consulting. Mamokheti, thank you so much for um, your patience. We've been just t- talking to Puke about the polar- polarised perspectives of various uh, participants in the labour market. What are some of the shifts that you're seeing at the moment? Hi, good evening, Rafila. Good evening. Yes, we are seeing... Um, the change in terms of in the politics of labor, how um, for the longest period of time we've had stability. Now we are noticing uh, the changing in the, the power dynamics within labor. By that I mean, if you listen today and observe today, how Kosaki seems to be on its way down, while Safki seems to be rising. On the other hand, you have uh, Anku that is almost operating as if it's a federation on its own, even though it belongs to a federation. Hmm. It is so powerful that it can be often perceived as that. Those politics uh, that are realigning um, labor movement are also going to impact and realign loyalties within uh, trade union members. And so as we have seen on, on the 25th strike of SAFTU, the turnout that we've seen today. So I, I think the contentions are going to intensify. And as they intensify, they often spill out to workplace issues such as um, wage negotiations and, 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 and other issues. And so the negotiations period that we are about to see unfold um, in various sectors, including the mining sector, are going to be quite tricky moving forward because it's not only about worker-related issues, they are contending survival of their individual unions or federations. And just looking at that fragmentation and that very survival, would you say SAFTU is the natural prince that's coming out of the fragmentation or is there still a contest on the go? There is still a contest. However, I always say it's as if um, as one power falls, the other one rises, emerges mm. from its ashes. And I saw a print daily paper on its Twitter account reporting that Essie was talking and presenting some of the workers started walking out. Again, it might not be that many numbers, but this is so significant. And even to the workers who are on social media or who will be reading that paper tomorrow to notice that there is a change in dynamics. And so safety might be on the rise. However, that can be changed instantly if Kosati was to go to Congress and completely re-elect the new leader and reinvent itself. So the... 
Yes. Just one other question I wanted to ask. So the, the political sort of alignment that we, we see, I, I completely understand. The wage alignment that we see, I completely understand. From, from the perspective of the fourth industrial revolution, the increased machination of jobs, how many of these unions, are any of them, not just in mining, which I know is your specialty, um, but where you specialize, but across the board, are any of them where you specialize, but across the board, are any of them standing out and providing viable solutions or helping to develop mitigating policies to, 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 to stop the or stem expected job losses? Not really, but then um, we cannot locate it simply to a union. You look at it broadly. I recently wrote about it. You look at broadly at a government policy level. And here, as we have seen in the past, we tend to be knee-jerk reactionary in terms we react later when things have happened. Mm-hmm. And so even within as 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 work redefines itself, as work becomes something more than changes through globalization and the impact of the fourth industrial revolution, those who are leading unions, those who are leading not just unions, but government and policymakers are seem to be struggling to come to terms with it. As such, they are unprepared. And you see it in in a key sector in South Africa, such as manufacturing, where in most advanced economy and some of the developed economy, they are already using components of the fourth industrial revolution, robotics, machines, and so forth. Here at home, we are still behind. So by the time some of the, the, the traders are going to say send our workers for training so that they can operate these machines, upskill them, they are going to be uh, rendered redundant because if you remember, the fourth industrial revolution, literature on its face, some of the jobs that we have today and the skills that we have today are going to be completely wiped out and replaced by something else. Absolutely. Very powerful insights from uh, Mamokheti Wolopiane, mining and labor analyst at Creative Voodoo Consulting. Lots for us to think about from all across the economy. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. It's Rifilo Molota here sitting in for Bruce Whitfield today um, on The Money Show. Uh, the first fact earlier on uh, that I asked you was who was the first finance minister since South Africa became a democracy? Um, and a number of you got it. And for, of course, the answer is Derek Keyes. Keyes served as Minister of Finance from 1992 to 1994 uh, in the cabinets of F.W. de Klerk and Nelson Mandela. I'm talking about him as it was reported, as being reported, it has been reported, excuse me, that he sadly passed away on Sunday night of natural causes at the age of 86. Prior to becoming minister, he had been the executive chairman of Gencore from, since 1986, and Keyes resigned shortly from uh, his finance ministry post shortly uh, after that, on, excuse me, on the 6th of July, 1994, and was replaced by banker Chris Liebenberg on 19 September. May he rest in peace. 702 and Cape Talk, The Money Show. It's still Workers' Day, of course. Um, one of the things that many of us have to deal with that I'm sure Minister Derek Keyes never had to deal with was the frustration of PowerPoint slides, and they are now being banned in executive boardrooms at Amazon. In his 2018 letter, uh, Amazon founder and CEO Jeff Bezos repeated that his rule that PowerPoint is now banned in executive meetings, noting that's, that noting that he it was revealed that narrative structure is far more effective to communicate a message than PowerPoint. And why is that? 
Molly says it's for three reasons. First of all, neuroscientists say our brains are coded to receive narratives. The brain is wired for stories. We process and express ourselves in narratives, even in our dreams. The second reason, stories are far more persuasive. While data is very effective, contextualizing data into a story provides for a far more effective and convincing strategy than just shooting off stats. And finally, Carmine Gallo, writing in Inc.com, highlights bullet points are the least effective way to share ideas, apparently. They don't inspire but stories do. And he notes that the most inspiring business people and speakers speak in full sentences and narratives, highlighting Richard Branson, Elon Musk, and Google CEO Sundar Pichai. And I guess that's why we don't do radio in bullet points either. Of course, we were saying we wanted to speak to Brett Dawson, uh, who is uh, the former chairman of, uh, former CEO, excuse me, of Dimension Data and now chairman of Gather Online. South African social media platform Gather Online seeks further international expansion, bringing in this heavy hitter, Mr. Dawson, uh, on board as their chairman to oversee the, imbe- the ambitious feat. Uh, the platform, which is dubbed Snapchat for Groups, provides the open accessibility and time-limited engagement on, on content that Snapchat gives, but also gives, gives you the functionality to engage in groups or communities interested in opting in to particular topics. He's put his money where the, his mouth is and filled a large portion of the third round of the company's seed funding with a 10 million rand injection. And he is here to speak to us a little bit about the investment. Brett Dawson, former CEO of Dimension Data and chairman of Gather Online, welcome to the show. How are you? Oh, very, very well. Thanks for feeling and a real pleasure to be with you this evening, spend a bit of time with you and your and your listeners. Um, thank you. Likewise, I'm really excited to hear a little bit more about this. You know, in a myriad of uh, social media, in a world of myriad social media platforms, can you help us understand a little bit of the functionality of Gather Online? And how does it compare well, to other existing platforms? Certainly, Rafael. If you look at the world today in social media, has got uh, has come a long way in in a, in a couple of decades in a short space of time, um, and today you really have uh, so much content out there, and really you can get access to to just about anything you want, and you know news, opinions, views, and there's just a lot of content out mm-hmm. there on whatever may interest you, whatever may interest you. You can find it if you are patient enough and if you are determined enough. So. What uh, with this um, uh, the, the conundrum of content being out there, but it's actually quite difficult to find unless you are mining several different social media platforms and you're connecting with all different kinds of people and and, and articles and different platforms. Very very difficult. So yeah. in gather uh, online, we're trying to turn that around and make uh, make it easy and really make it easy for you to get to the content that matters. To you, so a completely different kind of approach. Most of the other ones, the, the big players will just, you know, just feed the content out there. There's no filters, there's no quality mechanism. Right. We try to turn that around and say, you know, if you're interested in certain content, how can we make sure? How can we enable you to get to the content that matters to you? And that then is the purpose of of Gather Online. We want to be the leading platform, if you like, the ultimate platform to make sure that you get to the content that matters to you. Now, I quite like that from a functionality perspective. As a long-standing part, participant in the tech industry, what was it about their, I suppose, nuts and bolts, for lack of a better word, because I'm quite dumb on the tech front, <laughs> that really drew you to their, their well, capability uh, to, to be the leading, to be the best? Yeah, Rafael, it's not actually about the tech, you know. So, uh, I, you know, I'm, what, what I'm doing, you know, and then at the moment in the last two years building up a portfolio 
of uh, of investments which all just seek to fundamentally attack or, you know, a transformative uh, and a changing world where technology will be more and more the, the key enabler to really transformative change, uh, whether that may be simple things, um, you know, just a simple process, or something quite revolutionary. So I'm really trying to just uh, focus on companies that, look to change business models mm. uh, and to do that using the technologies and the technology may um, you know may may change it may be obsolete in in a moment in time i've seen this in you know, time and time again so i'm not inv- actually investing at all in technology but rather in people that are looking to use technology to change the game so i think uh, uh, gather has got great people they've built up uh, already uh, a reasonable base of loyal um, uh, participants. We have about 42,000 okay. people engaging with the platform per day. Is that um, all in SA? And that's, no, no, most of it's actually in Australia. It's, mm-hmm. it's really spread. The two founders are, are South Africans, but one now lives in Sydney, David, and, and, and one in Johannesburg. So you, you kind of have the volume split between Australia, South Africa, and frankly, then about 30% in the rest of the world. Um, but it's, it's still early days, and, and we, have, you know, we have big dreams to hopefully uh, just make the whole content experience for you so much easier, so much better, and much more engaging. So what we're trying to do is... Is, is say you are interested in in any kind of key topic that might be uh, a sport like say for example if you're talking in South Africa rugby yeah. you could go on to this site here you join a community the rugby community and within that rugby community we will seek to attract some of the the world's leading commentators to that uh, uh-huh. to that community and so you'd go there because you would know that sort of every day if you like there'd be some kind of article, video, content, people talking about, you know, games and that type of thing. And so you have these structure around communities that you voluntarily, I mean, communities that you voluntarily, I mean, you, you choose to participate in that one. You could just as easily choose to participate in a religious one, or, you know, whatever it might be. And then if you can, within that community, then still create these subgroups of where you might go specifically only to look at you know, whatever it might be, the Lions rugby. So it might be a subset of a, a broader theme. So we, yeah, we're going to be working hard, re-releasing the you know, entire platform in the next four, you know, maybe, maybe about the next four weeks, the new version of the of the of the platform. Hopefully, um, you know, even more even more compelling. And so you'd go there for your for your news, for your your passions, whatever that might be. And, and, and hopefully you get a much more meaningful dialogue because then you can actually communicate two-way streets. You know, some social media apps like WhatsApp are very, very, very good for one-to-one conversation. But okay. when you want to start actually conversing with just people in a certain topic and make sure that it's kind of contained within that topic. And then if you, for some reason, think, oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm actually interested in just a subset of this, you can then create these sub kind of uh, communities and, and, and then just explore stuff that's really interesting to you. To you. So I- we're already seeing and gathered online that our, the engagement scores, the, the, the amount of time that people spend on our site is so much more than, than most of the other social media sites because the other ones you spend most of your time just searching for the content. You just can't 
fine with looking for, really. Whereas this, uh, been, this has been filtered just, for you. Yeah, yeah, it's just so, it's so much easier. And so we, we, we have communities where the content is curated. We have uh, leaderboards. Where we, we're going to be working really hard to make sure it's quality content. And, um, and uh, yeah. Can you tell us a bit about David, about David Price and, and, the, and the two South Africans behind this great idea? I think uh, the, the, the business, I mean, David and Michael yes. are the two guys, and they have been friends for quite some time. And they they, they started this business, I would think, about three years ago. And um, you know, they've taken it through several rounds of seed funding and have got some uh, raised, raised the interest of uh, some folks in, I think, um, both in South Africa and Australia in terms of funding it, and um, passionate young guys seeking to change the world in, in, in some small way. And, of course, this round of seed funding uh, was, was geared at sort of broadening the international expansion. Where exactly geographically are you trying to focus? Well, uh, well the at growth. the moment, we have been a pretty reasonable, you know, well, still, it's still too small everywhere. <laughs> it's, a long way. it's an early, early phase of the journey. Uh, but mostly you've got an Australian and a South African base and a bit around the U.S. We'd like to... To expand that into into we think uh, that opportunity for us everywhere, but we'll focus mainly in in, in a couple of targeted markets uh, within Europe and Asia, mm-hmm. in our next kind of stage. Um, but yeah, right now we we really trying to uh, continuously improve the the platform and make sure that that you know, becomes uh, a much you know, an even better and better experience. Because I know without Without you having a great experience there, then, you know, you vote to defeat and you go to somebody else. Absolutely. Brett, without sounding like an old, uh, elderly, rather not old, but elderly Senate <laughs> committee member questioning Mark Zuckerberg, what is the revenue-making model that underpins this? Well, at the moment, the uh, gather online is actually pre-revenue. So, okay. So it's an interesting world where um, we, we try to build the, build the, the offering to people without uh, without that commercial, we will look to without a commercial model actually being in, pa- in place today. It's free yes. service. Um, in the next quarter or two, we will be introducing uh, commercial models, which will uh, on both this platform or we see it both in the business to consumer type uh, approach, and also uh, we think we've come up with a, a really killer value proposition actually on a business to business, and to be able to use this platform. Um, as a business communication tool. Um, so if you like on the business side, mm. you know, how easy would it be instead of buying this extremely uh, expensive software um, uh, from, from, I won't mention names, but, but, but <laughs> to do collaboration internally. Um, I was going to mention it, but just, I won't then, yeah. <laughs> I was how curious. about we just let you build your own community? So you could say, you know, I want to build a you know, 702 community on the site you build it, you can limit people coming to it, and you have your own social media collaboration suite with, and we can you can you know, use anything you like with you know, and for a fraction of the price. So we bring in out a business section of this with, uh, with substantially reduced cost to what's out in the market today. We think on the one hand, and then on the consumer side, I think as that quality builds. We'll have opportunity to start actually having um, some form of, uh, of, of of ongoing fees for people who, con- who contribute and and um, to the content, and uh, we, we see those models emerging now. 
folks who contribute to, the, to, to be a, a, um, a verified content provider. And on the other hand, folks are starting to build commercial models where people who contribute great content actually get rewarded in some form of tipping kind of thing which goes on, on uh, in recognition uh, on the site. So we're working on those. We've got them in kind of beta right now. And uh, in the next quarter or two, we'll, we'll be introducing these commercial models. And also, I think, right. you know, Phil, as the value um, gets, gets more and more compelling, I think um, our ability to charge will also be you know, more real. Very exciting. That's Brett Dawson, former CEO of Dimension Data and chairman of Gather Online. Very excited to see Email be disintermediated. SMS us on 31702 or 31567. You're still on The Money Show with Rufilo Molota sitting in for Bruce Whitfield today. Continuing our discussions about the labor market this Workers' Day, the landscape is obviously changing a great deal. Professionals and experts are increasingly operating on t- private terms, either as freelancers or starting consultancies of their own and seeking businesses outside of their corporate incumbents. Markets at the same time are also shifting, seeking less constrictive commitments to staff as businesses grow and allowing flexible working conditions. Put that together and we are looking at a much more fluid employment or at least work engagement environment. Stelo Makatini, co-founder of Linked Pro, has taken advantage of the intermediary gap in this market with his digital platform, which connects these shifting businesses and independent professionals. Stelo, good evening. How are you? Good evening, Rafael. How are you doing? Excellent. Thank you. Please tell us a little bit about the gig, quote-unquote, gig economy and what signs pointed you towards this digital platform idea. All right. Okay. Um, I mean, look, where we find ourselves at the moment is, um, I mean, I think it's quite interesting. We're seeing the digital transformation of labor, as we call it. Um, where we're seeing that a lot of professionals are actually leaving permanent employment to seek opportunities as freelancers um, because they are firstly looking for the entrepreneurial excitement Mm. of running their own businesses, but also they're looking for what we call um, work-life flexibility. Um, The world is moving away now from work-life balance to to a new term called work-life flexibility, Mm -hmm. and that's what we're seeing in the market. So essentially what we've done that as Linkro is that we've just created a platform where freelance professionals who are leaving permanent employment, um, they could find project opportunities on our platform uh, and be connected to corporates who are actually looking for niche expertise on a project basis. So how would you differ yourself, um, you know, providing sort of a gig to, together from, for example, a consulting or part-time contract that a staff may, uh, or that a worker might seek? Okay. Um, so we differentiate ourselves from, um, first of all, some of the well-known social media platforms that are mm-hmm. predominantly for professionals. And the way we differentiate ourselves is very simple. One, we are an active skills platform and by that i mean we have people who are actively looking for project opportunities right right um secondly we are not a social network but we are rather an exclusive platform for freelance professionals and experts who are looking for project opportunities so um when we compare ourselves for instance to some of the well-known guys Mm. we say that we're not a social network but an exclusive network and by that we mean that there is a strict vetting process before people become part of our network, right? Mm-hmm. And we are also very, very different from an urgency in that um, we allow our freelance community to actually negotiate their own rates with companies who are looking for the skills. So how do you actually link the two parties that work on your platform? Is it a qualitative process or is it uh, algorithmic? 
All right. Okay. So, um, so we've got. I mean, we've got two parties. One, clients looking for um, looking for freelancers, There's and two, we've yeah. got yeah, we, yeah, we've got professionals who are looking for project opportunities. So we use what we call a, a computer matching algorithm. Mm-hmm. We actually automatically match the project brief that a client would have um, with our global network of professionals. So that's really how we do it. Excellent. And, how, and so how long has this been running and, and, uh, and how big is the platform both on the professional side and the corporate side? All right. Um, so uh, just in terms of the traction that we've had from, uh, from a consultant side or rather a professional side. So we've got a global network now mm-hmm. uh, of professionals. Uh, so we've got people in the U.S., U.K. Um, uh, we've got a good contingent in, uh, in Australia. And then we've got, uh, we've got professionals across 46 African countries. And um, just, yeah, just in terms of our, 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 our clients, we have, um, I think, about close to 9% of the uh, top blue chip uh, companies listed on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. We've got multinationals as well on our platform. Um, we also have clients outside of, um, outside of uh, South Africa. We also have clients outside of the African continent, including Brazil. Sounds like a very exciting platform to be a part of. That's uh, the CEO and co-founder of, of Linked Pro, Stelo Makatini, uh, connecting our uh, partnerships. Uh, and you're back on The Money Show with Rufilo Meloto sitting in for Bruce Whitfield. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Now, it's emerged in the papers that the United States has decided to threaten to cut South Africa's funding through USAID after it emerged that South Africa is among the countries in the United Nations most likely to vote against the U.S. on any particular position. Uh, the U.S., uh, through its USAID program, according to the Mail and Guardian, provides funding for SA's health services, uh, basic education and assistance for small and medium enterprises. In 2016, that was around $459 million. And the threat to cut, the threat to cut funding obviously came after Nikki Haley, U.S. ambassador to the U.N., also warned uh, many nations in December that her government would be taking names of the countries who did not vote with America on the recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. The U.S. has now compiled its U.N. voting practices report for 2017 and figured out which U.N. member states are likely to vote in its favor and vote against it. South Africa is amongst the 10 most likely to vote against amongst some of our neighbors, such as Zimbabwe and Burundi. 702 and Cape Talk, The Money Show. As usual on a Tuesday, we have Heroes and Zeros with advertising and branding expert Andy Rice. Uh, Andy Rice, it's lovely to have you with us on the line today. How are you? We're talking about selling features and products versus their benefits. Yep. How are you, Rafael? Happy Workers' Day. Likewise, same to you. Thanks for joining us, notwithstanding. Absolute pleasure. It's nice to be down here in the Cape, actually. So um, I wanted to talk today about... Um, what we might call the merits of minimalism in advertising. And by mm-hmm. that I mean um, trying to be sufficiently disciplined so as not to try and cram everything into every advertisement. Now, I know that's quite difficult for some because advertising is extremely expensive. Indeed. And it's, it's extremely tempting as a result to try and cram everything in, including the kitchen sink. And I'm afraid there's a lot of uh, ads around that do this and dramatically undermine their effectiveness as a result. So you get those typical newspaper ads or radio ads that you can see that the client has said, well, let's have a catchy opening headline and a, a, a zeller at the beginning of the right. ad and lots of body copy will explain all those 
wonderful technical features in the ad. We'll talk about the range we've got, the colors, mm -hmm. the price. Let's put in a phone number and a URL so they can get hold of us. And by the time you've packed all that into 30 seconds of radio advertising or maybe a half-page ad in a newspaper, I'm afraid you've lost your audience long ago because you're asking them to remember so much, they end up remembering nothing at all. Very true. So what kind and of... The, uh, the what? worst culprits in this, Rafael, are the um, IT companies, mm. uh, followed closely by the banks. The IT companies seem to think that the rest of the world is obsessed by their gigabytes and their megahertz and all of their features. Most of which we don't understand. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, and the banks are always bombarding you with interest rates and new uh, financial uh, bank account models and things. And so, uh, really, as a generic industry, I think that these guys who try and, and do too much and ignore the merits of minimalism would be my zero for tonight. And who would the heroes be of this particular style of advertising? Well, it would be those who are disciplined um, and who uh, remind themselves every time that you've really only got to get one strong message across and let other forms of marketing do the rest. Um, I had a, a, a marvelous boss at Ogilvy called Robin Putter, mm -hmm. and he used to use the metaphor of throwing a bunch of tennis balls at me, uh, saying that if I throw six at you, you'll drop the lot. If I throw one, you'll catch it. Great analogy, actually. Wrong on that second point, but... Um, <laughs> the, the argument is still valid that um, you really do need to be single-minded. And looking through the weekend's newspapers or advertisements that live up to that, I found uh, a couple. Um, mm -hmm. Ern Gray, always a, a, a very creative and successful advertiser, on the front page of the Sunday Times, I think it was, simply had a seven-word advertisement. Your money is busy. Please be patient. <laughs> and, that, and that gets across their brand proposition of long-term investing brilliantly without having to go into all the bells and whistles of their different unit trusts and, and whatever it may be. Very clever, simple piece of advertising. Um, and then minimalism doesn't always mean uh, very few words. It really means um, very few thoughts, preferably just one thought. So Johnny Walker, the whiskey brand, has done this very, very well forever, really, uh, where they uh, support their proposition of keep walking um, as a metaphor for uh, striving step by step to meet your ambitions. Mm. And in a print ad, a newspaper ad sandwiched between a Freedom Day and Workers' Day, they yeah. had a very nice um, print ad that simply said, or not simply quite a long ad, I won't read it all, but from, uh, it says, from the training grounds in Pretoria to the fastest man in the Commonwealth, from the 3 a.m. wake-ups and long walks to work to every work, every work of power in our nation, from dreaming about a better future to making it happen. And so there are eight or nine single-minded common thoughts illustrating the idea of step-by-step step improving mm. your lot and improving the lot of the country. And that's been their proposition for, for many, many moons, not a single visual of a bottle of whiskey or a glass or an ice cube or anything like that. Right. This, this manifesto, if you like, which I think is, is, is very successful. Andy, if I'm hearing what you're saying, then what, what I'm taking from particularly these two examples is, you know, maybe the central tenet is to ensure that I walk away knowing what I feel every time I see that logo or see that brand. Um, I know Alan Gray is always very good at making us cry, you know, watching a family <laughs> grow over, over, many, over many years with their, with their ad, ad, ad campaigns. You know, they really touch the heart in terms of 
what money buys for you, which is comfort or, um, you know, supporting your family, raising a family. Similarly, Johnny Walker putting forward that it makes you feel like you're progressing, advancing. Um, and, and maybe what those IT brands could take from this is just show me how you make my life easier instead of telling me all of your features. You're absolutely right. And in fact, the, the one um, shining example within the IT industry is Apple, mm-hmm. who tell you nothing about the technology, but everything about the design and how uh, becoming part of the Apple family can help you realize your creative uh, impulses and uh, talks about you, the user, not, not the, the equipment and the features thereof. But um, what it means most of all is this idea of discipline. Um, there's that famous quote attributed to a whole bunch of different people that says, um, I would have written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have the time. Uh, to make the point that actually brevity is more difficult to achieve than verbosity. And uh, I don't know who was, who actually did make that statement first. It goes right back to Cicero in some instances and right forward to Mark Twain and Winston Churchill. But whoever said it, it was a very wise, very wise thought to demonstrate the difficulty of being concise. And, and of finding, of establishing brevity. And the other thing I wanted to chat to you about over and above our Heroes and Zeros, you had a thought about the witty car ads. Yeah, my attention was drawn to a, a piece in the Sunday Times uh, uh, written by Putti and Priyani. Mm-hmm. I haven't completely slaughtered the pronunciation there. Um, an opinion piece under the headline, Where Have All the Witty Ads Gone? Of course, that drew my um, eye towards it. And mm-hmm. uh, basically, uh, Putti was um, lamenting the, the, the disappearance of witty ads, particularly witty car ads, and drew our attention to um, old Beatle ads and things. And I'm, I'm right behind Putti on this one. I think right. it's absolutely um, a, a huge loss that we don't have these wonderful creative ideas coming through in the automotive category as much as it used to. Such as um, Beats the Benz, which always comes to mind. Absolutely. Then, yeah. but I think it's it's it, there's now a, a trend to make ads for a global market, not a local market. And so, with all the different cultures the ad is trying to appeal to, they end up choosing the least offensive rather than the, the most rather than the, the most motivating. And you just won't get ads like one I remember from from my uh, younger years for the um, the rather eccentric little Citroen, the two CV, the yes. Chevaux. There was a full-page ad which had four headlines. I'm going against what I said earlier, but it says, faster than a Ferrari, as many wheels as a Rolls-Royce, more room than a Porsche, the 2,000-pound Citroen 2CV de Chevaux. And under, under the faster than a Ferrari, for example, it says, traveling flat out at 71 miles per hour, the Citroen 2CV will easily overtake the Ferrari Mondial traveling at 63 <laughs> miles per hour. And that kind of... That's uh, sweet. Wit and um, ability to, to, to poke fun at other brands and, and stuff. Just like the Beats the Benz did so successfully. Yes. We, think, we seem to have lost that. We seem to have uh, become risk averse. And that, I think, is a tragedy. But do you think it's, I mean, do you think it's necessary to potentially offend one group or another in order to be witty? As with that very example of BMW's ad, you know, nobody would have been culturally offended except maybe, you know, Mercedes-Benz with, the, with BMW driving on Chapman's Peak. But, um, you know, is it, is it just a lack of creativity to suggest that, oh, in a more politically correct and more diverse and globalized world, I can't apply myself as an ad exec to thinking about something witty and out of the box? I think you're absolutely right. I think that um, we've, we've lost that courage. 
Uh, we've lost that ability to take risks. It's often said that the only real risk is to take no risk at all, and I would endorse that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that um, marketers do try and spread their, their coverage too widely, rather than saying this, this car is single-mindedly designed for young families in an urban environment. So let's not worry if, if uh, uh, older, older uh, customers in a rural environment don't like it. We're not trying to appeal to them, but too right. often they well, how can we find a solution that appeals to everyone? And the answer is it will probably appeal to no one as a result. It will kind of fall flat, rather. And, yeah. and if not wit, then what other approaches could we take to sort of, uh, I suppose, spice up uh, advertising um, be, without making people dance for tea? <laughs> yeah. Which I frustrates me no end. Without <laughs> giving brands personality as well. Sometimes the, uh, the engineering is unimportant. It's the, it's, the, it's the character of the brand, the personality of the brand. Look how Nando's do that so successfully. Right. But the good though their chicken is, I think they would be the first to admit that chicken largely is chicken is chicken. And what makes Nando's really so successful globally is this extraordinary uh, distinctive personality and, and wit and sense of fun that they overlay their brand with. Well, they definitely do. I mean, I think they definitely do hold the crown for that one in South, in South Africa. And them and anyone who associates with the likes of, a, I don't know, a Suzelle or a, a back in the day, um, Peter Dirk Ace's uh, character, um, help me out, uh, Avita Poseidon, thank you very much. And yes, you know, Avita for herself, you know, and if you have to compare the Suzelles and the Avita Poseidon, they have a similar kind of irreverence in their personality um, where you can align with, a, I, I imagine, um, a bit of a silly and witty um, a poke of fun in, in a not too dissimilar way without having to offend anybody. Um, you know, obviously, Suzelle operates in a completely different environment from when Evita did when that kind of, there was a range of offenses that was appropriate. Uh, and yet she's still successful today with a similar model. Yeah, but the, the trouble is it, it, it asks the advertiser to be brave, and that's mm. what they're very good at. And big data has come along to try and provide answers, which therefore mean as the, as the, as the client about to sign off on an expensive advertising campaign that they no longer need to worry about their own creative judgment because the numbers tell them it's the right thing to do. And, of course, it very rarely is. It doesn't actually translate into profits, I suppose. You're quite right. Andy Rice, branding and advertising expert, thank you again for joining us on The Money Show. It's always so enlightening and such a pleasure to hear your perspectives. The Money Show. The Africa Business Report. Welcome back to The Money Show. You're still with Rufilo Molota standing in for Bruce Whitfield this week, and it's time for the Africa Business Report. Today we're speaking to Ronak Gopaldas, Director at Signal Risk. Ronak, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thanks very much, Rafiwe. Very much looking forward to some of your perspectives uh, on various, uh, I suppose, developments that are impacting and their potential impact on Africa. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your thoughts on this global trade war? Is this a yeah. theater or a significant threat? Uh, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. You know, markets uh, have reacted quite negatively in, in recent times on the, on the threats of, of a trade war. Uh, and I think to really understand it properly, we need to understand Trumponomics and the way Donald Trump uh, approaches global economics. So, you know, when he was elected, markets rallied quite significantly. Mm -hmm. There was a Trump, Trump trade uh, on the back of a pro-business tax reform, fiscal stimulus drive, um, you know, and that that was seen to be kind of traditional Republican policy uh, and, and good, good for the economy and good for, for markets. So that's kind of good Trumponomics. The bad side is this anti-globalist, protectionist and more insular approach that we've seen and um you know 
which which of these contradictory forces is going to play out um, is now the, the question that markets are wondering about. You know, my personal view is that this is a tactic. It's more theatrical than anything else. Mm-hmm. We've got the U.S. midterms coming up in November. If he can extract some concessions out of China, uh, he's going to frame that as a win. You know, and if you look at precedent around this and his stance around NAFTA and TPP, um, he's taken a kind of hardline stance and, and, and then softened, um, you know, as, as time progressed. So, you know, still something to be concerned about um, from, from a market perspective, um, you know, which of these, these forces are going to play out and win. But uh, my view is that, you know, we're not going to get tit-for-tat retaliations and escalations on a major level. Certainly not. There's, I mean, there's limited room for, for anyone to fight a little bit further. And to your point about always sort of stepping off the gas, you know, he's just offered a second exemption on metal import tariffs to his allies, uh, Donald Trump, uh, to U.S. allies, which it, it sounds as though is ca- causing a bit of contention amongst the EU who don't really want to be pushed into doing anything under pressure, whereas instead what he could be doing is working alongside them, let's say, to try and get his ultimate goal, which is get concessions from China, you know, uh, in, 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 in a pluralistic way. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, it's very, very difficult to, I guess, uh, you know, look at Trump's policymaking in conventional, in a conventional sense. You know, we've got policy pronouncements made on Twitter these days. Um, you know, the staff turnover is basically like a reality TV show. Um, so, you know, it's 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 very difficult to to really um, understand, you know, what the end game is. And I, you know, sometimes wonder if he even knows. But you know, a lot of a lot of this is is kind of framed under this Make America Great context. Uh, and I think the perception of decisive and firm leadership, regardless of the results, is, is what really works in his favor a lot of the time. So what is this uh, sort of uh, prevarication in, in thoughts, policy, uh, even, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, T- team within the White House? Um, what does that mean uh, for the impact on Africa? And is there a sense of complacency about whether this will have an impact? So, to be frank, Donald Trump doesn't really care about about Africa. His his policy towards Africa is one of benign neglect. And unless Africa can offer him something, and unless there's a return on investment, then you know Africa will 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 benefit. I mean, you know, we we can look at the example of President uh, Buhari, who had a press conference with with President Trump yesterday, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, the two big themes that came out of that was the focus on security and a focus on trade. Um, President Trump was quite explicit in saying that uh, Nigeria needed to move away from its um, its protectionist bias and make make uh, its market more accessible for U.S. goods. And if they did that, the U.S. would invest. Um, but then, obviously, the, the threat of Islamic terrorism, which Nigeria suffers from, um, was another thing on the radar. And you know, the amount of military backing, funding, and military business that, that we are likely to see coming out of this visit is a clear indication of what's good for Nigeria and what's good for America where their interests align. That's very true. And I would definitely say that press conference sort of brings this ongoing force towards bilateral engagement to our door as Africans. You know, he, this, the slew of visits that the president has, President Trump has had to the White House over the last couple of weeks, almost trying to mm. de- dismantle multilateral partnerships um, and, and then move into a bilateral one. How much does yesterday's press conference uh, contradict with uh, America's engagement for, through AGOA with African countries, including Nigeria? And how frustrating must it be, or, or what are your views on the fact that that is Buhari's first trip after refusing to sign the Continental Free Trade Agreement in Africa? Yeah, I mean, you know, we are moving into a world where kind of multilateralism is largely being replaced by bilateralism. Um, you know, I, I don't think that there, there, 
there's necessarily it, it necessarily has to be either or. Um, I think you can you know have successful bilateral relationships um, as well as multilateral relationships. But you know again to the point, I think you know given the policy agenda and framework that the U.S. is now adopting. Uh, African countries and African states need to position themselves accordingly because this is, one, these are kind of the terms and conditions that they're going to get. And I think economic diplomacy becomes a very important factor in, in this equation. And it, it doesn't simply apply to the U.S. I think there are opportunities across the board. Um, you know, Japan and, and India are becoming a lot more proactive in their approach to Africa. There's potentially an opportunity with Brexit for, for Africa to reorient um, some of the, the trade relationships it has, um, particularly around agricultural policy, where it, it gets a, a bad deal from the EU. So I think broader, broader economic diplomacy is a, is a tactic and a strategy that um, not enough African countries are currently adopting. True. Sorry, we're losing you there, uh, Ronak. Well, so one more time. So you're saying is what it's uh, global diplomacy is increasingly is increasingly sort of moving moving away. Well, so at least think, that Africans are not participating in properly. So I think there's an opportunity here for for Africa. There's effectively a new scramble for Africa um, in the sense that you know Africa is kind of largely seen as the, the final frontier. We've got strong demographics. We've got high growth rates. Commodity prices have picked up now. Um, so the the investment case is there, and we're seeing renewed interest especially from China. Um, so, you know, generally, I think there's an opportunity for Africa to market itself and to attract funding from different parts of the globe. You know, the Turks are, are becoming more and more active in, in Africa. Yeah. Um, the, the EU is largely centered around security and migration, so that's an opportunity there. Britain, post-Brexit, is looking to, to create uh, better free trade deals. And America, again, will focus on, on trade and, and security. Um, you know, China's obviously, it's One Belt, One Road initiative, also uh, investing a lot of money on the infrastructure side of things on the continent. So, you know, all things taken together, there is interest and each party um, wants to, to benefit in a certain way. So I think it's up to policymakers in Africa, and especially in light of this continental free trade agreement, to... Um, to, to kind of, you know, fight as one unified block and right. to get concessions on, on their terms. Okay. Um, Angola, what is, on, what is underfoot there? So Angola has witnessed uh, quite a big political shakeup since, uh, you know, Eduardo de Santos was, was replaced as president after almost 40 years. Uh, and this happened last year. He was kind of... Uh, replaced by his successor, João Lorenzo. Um, mm. And everybody expected Lorenzo to be a bit of a yes man, to not really rock the boat too much. But the, the rate of change and the sweeping changes that have been made um, have, been, have been quite remarkable. You know, the, the, president, the former president's uh, two kids, Isabella dos Santos, who was the head of, of Sonangol, the oil company, and Jose Filomeno, who was in charge of the Sovereign who was in charge of the Sovereign Wealth Fund, um, are both under investigation for for corruption and and criminal offences. Um, he's replaced. From roles, yeah. yeah, exactly. And you know, there there have been um, big changes in the kind of military side of things and the intelligence cluster. Um, and you know, Lorenzo is is, is slowly starting to consolidate. His, uh, his position 
by putting his own people in there. Um, you know, this has obviously been very well received by international investors and the international world, uh, or, or, you know, generally given the stance uh, against corruption that he's taken. And people are viewing it as a sign of positive change and reform in Angola. I think it's probably, you know, early days to, to make that uh, conclusive judgment. But, uh, you know, directionally we're seeing... We're seeing a lot of positives over there. And, you know, generally in Southern Africa, if you take what's happening in South Africa with a new president in Zimbabwe, also moving in the right direction, and now Angola, um, there seems to be quite a, quite a lot of reform momentum in the Southern African region. Or it would seem, what, what you hear bubbling under from the ground in Zimbabwe, it's sort of a new, new driver, same bus. Yeah, I mean, the, this election is going to be quite important. Um, I think a lot of the international community is is adopting a wait-and-see attitude. This is going to be the first election, of course, without uh, Robert Mugabe nor Morgan Shangarai. Um, And I think what's going to be quite key is, given this kind of orientation that uh, Zimbabwe is taking now, where it's saying that it's open to to business, um, more proactive, more pragmatic around uh, around economic policy, um, what's going to be quite critical is if international sanctions are lifted uh it re-engages the western world uh, the likes of the imf and i think you know given the fact that the base is so low in zimbabwe um uh, a positive election that's that's viewed as credible could be a catalyst for for ongoing investment into the country one one final thought here ronak uh if you had to take a one bullet 30 second perspective here CFTA in the way that we should negotiate with the rest of the world, or do you really still stand behind the idea that Buhari and then um, uh, and then Dos Santos, or, or excuse me, uh, Cyril Ramaphosa should go one by one to the US? So I think you know personally, I think Africa's power is as a collective. So I would like to see um, you know a more unified stance at the negotiating table in, in global affairs. You know, with the continent speaking with one voice, but obviously that's, uh, that's difficult. There are 54 countries on the continent, each with its own policy agendas and orientations. You know, for example, Nigeria is a lot more uh, inward-looking around some of its economic policies. Than- Fair enough. Thank you very much, Werner Kopaldas, Director at Signal Risk. Thank you very much for that perspective on the Africa Business Report. It's- the Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. The Money Show. The science of. Welcome back to The Money Show. Still with Rufila standing in for Bruce Whitfield. Today's science of, we're speaking about the science of Africa's fashion, high-end clothing and luxury industries. A title after my own heart. Uh, Clanti Pai, economist and founder at Nascent Advisory, is going to be joining us on the line. Clanti recently wrote a piece alongside Dr. Precious Moloy Mutsepe, executive chairman of Africa Fashion International, motivating for increased focus on consistent policy intervention in the clothing manufacturing industry to take advantage of growing fashion demand in Africa, most specifically in high-end and luxury industries. Uh, he talks to us today about his perspective. Clanti, thank you so much for joining us on the line today. Hi, good evening, Rosalind. Good evening to your listeners, and thanks for having us. Great to talk to you. Indeed. Um, so, tell us uh, just to kick us off. How big is the African clothing and textile market? Look, I mean, it's huge. You know, um, you know, there's all sorts of uh, estimations, of course, right? And mm. I think you know, you can go with any um, one that you like. But I think it's very clear to me that um, what we're really, really talking about is actually whether you know, is a growing appetite and a growing middle class 
um, on the African continent. Because I suppose for the longest time we've always thought about Africa as you know the the fortune at the bottom of the of the of the pyramid or at the bottom of the pyramid. But I think there's a lot of growth that we've seen, and a lot of that often is enjoyed actually on the African continent by external brands. And I think those are the brands that, you know, if we measure against, we're able to actually tell. So, I mean, I think one of the things that we did in the article was to look at, you know, South African brands that have made it internationally to think what could we do actually um, in terms of creating wealth if we actually turned the focus not on Europe, um, not on the U.S., but actually to look much closer into the continent. Could you tell us a little bit about one of those ones that was a success story? Yeah, so I mean, look, I think if you, um, you know, I uh, understand um, the South African brand um, that is, that's uh, not the name, in case I'm going to remember just now, but um, this is a South African company that has been grown that uh, produces some of the most leading brands uh, in the world, Richmond, yeah, in the world, where actually not just, they don't not only just make fashion in terms of clothes, but in design, so, you know, and things like Mont Blanc, things like, you know, perfumes, fragrances. Um, also, things that I think, in a big, big way, I think that South Africans are huge consumers of. Um, you understand also, also Africans in general. Somebody said actually the other day that if you look at something like um, the Diamond Mile at a certain city, mm. a lot of the consumers there, actually the intended consumers for the most part, are um, people who are coming not just from South Africa, but from the rest of the continent who may be passing through Johannesburg, um, you know, to come here on holiday, to shop. But you find a lot of other actual consumers that are even interested in, in you know, in, who come into this country, maybe, you know, from uh, from Asia. So there's a lot of opportunity because South Africa is also not just growing a fashion industry, the design industry, it's growing a um, a tourism industry. And those things tend to actually collide very, very nicely. And if we've been talking so strongly about um, about that, then we should be able to actually uh, say the same thing. If we talk about tourism, we should say the same thing about fashion and manufacturing and design. And if you look at even brands that we've seen quite um, doing quite successfully internationally in terms of um, what people are starting to look at, something somebody like uh, you know David Lally, who's shown showcased internationally mm. and been featured in international magazines. Um, the story I'm sure you want to touch on later on um, in terms of uh, Latuma by Marcos. Of course, there's like clearly t- there's well, well, yeah, uh, there's clearly Europe. appetite for our. Uh, for yeah. our goods, when when large international brands actually copy Absolutely. that, Absolutely. <laughs> we've got a lot of there's a lot of appetite internationally, and I think because I suppose in some sense also we do like to get affirmation from uh, you know from overseas. We move. Um, we that is something that actually gives an, us an idea of what we're capable of. You also, I mean, um, and I think in the article we start by talking about the idea of what we've seen in terms of you know the country of Wakanda. Um, yes. And how a lot of us have been so thrilled by that story, and so and I, I think it takes globally. Yeah, it, it's taken um, and, you know Americans to tell the story of a successful and thriving Africa, full of hope, that for us to actually buy into it. And I think this is something that shows that, of course, we've got the appetite, we've got actually the spending power, I mean, because we have also been one of the leading countries who have been able to sell this um, this story here sure. at home. One of one of the constraints that you raise in your piece with respect to being able to see this through is the the China effect, I guess, on the yeah. South African um, the textile industry and and the loss of jobs. This is an effect, however, that maybe not just China, but actually Southeast Asia effect on the textile industry that has had an effect on clothing manufacturers around the world, not just South Africa. What what policy interventions would you like us to see in order to in order to actually get back a little bit of competitive uh, comp- competitive edge in this in what is broadly a global dynamic? 
I think that's exactly the point that now it's time to move away from sweatshops. You know, it's time to move away from the lower end, as I say, or, you know, thinking of ourselves as, you know, well, let's go for the cheap manufacturing or the low end manufacturing. To start to think about the middle end, you know, Mm -hmm. fast moving fashion, fast moving uh, manufacturing and high end kind of um, fashion and manufacturing and design, as I say. Because I think that's where now the opportunity is. There is no way we're going to be able to compete again um, because that is really the race to the bottom. I think our labor laws have, you know, emerged uh, and evolved in such a way that we're not going to be able to actually put through people in the working conditions that they have to go through in places like Vietnam and Indonesia and even where China now is actually starting to lose, um, you know, that, yes. that market. And so we are not going to be able to play them. But we can play in the higher-end market where we're actually spending a lot of, um, of our efforts making sure that if we recognize that our people can actually and are willing and want to pay more, um, you know, for their clothing, for what they put on their backs, then we are looking for that part of the market and um, and think that we can advance that part of the market. Understood. Because it arises from the fact that we are actually um, no longer in, in low-income society, but much more of a middle-income or even emerging uh, society. Definitely. And so that would obviously require, if we're playing at that high end, a, a significant amount of value add in, in our manufacturing processes. Do we have the skills to play at the very high end to scale? There is, uh, you ask a really, really important question, and I think that is part of what we are trying to suggest here, that if you are starting to say, look, we definitely know that there are two parts that are necessary. There's the one part, which is obviously the talent, mm. the imagination, uh, the culture, we to be able that. to actually bring that to, um, you know, to fruition. Then we need to actually invest in the skills building. Mm. And there are lots of, lots of ways in which we can do that. And I think a lot of people have been actually very interested in helping us. There's a lot of, for example, Europeans who uh, would be more than willing, for example, if we actually brought them in. We talk about all the time, we talk about, you know, developing skills, like different skills sectors. We've got all these colleges that are supposed to help teach. And we can bring those and empower those to be able to actually help us uh, to be able to get to that point. There's also the, the design area, right, that we can yes. actually bring um, to bear more than just the skills in order to actually, you know, to be, uh, to sew things together. But, you know, to be designed to work with different kinds of fabrics, to buy or to create the technology to create these new kinds of fabrics new kinds of thinking. Um, and we can obviously get help. I mean, skills development is a thing. Nobody ever starts from a point of knowing. We have to actually be very, very invested in actually making sure that, you know, we learn. I mean, if you look at um, countries like Ghana, you know, the way they've been able to develop fabrics that are rich, that are very, very enticing. Um, We are the very, you know, and we call ourselves a developing country that actually is quite serious about this thing. Then we're going to have to actually take the time to go out and learn from, uh, from peers, whether they're in Europe or in the U.S. or in India, anywhere else. And bring those skills here at home, and, and and be able to put and build together, put together um, areas of of skills and excellence to be able to do that. Um, and so, again, it, it takes us to how we bring together um, a number of things in terms of just not just about collaboration as well, where we can put a precinct, for example, that allows us to say in this area, you know, not all we have design and manufacturing, but also we have tourism. So mm. that you know, somebody who is coming to South Africa can say, you know, I'm coming to South Africa, but I must not leave without having visited, uh, you, know, their, you know, their premier design center where they get to, um, to look at what we've got and being able to actually sample and take some of those things away. And that's actually how you build industries rather than to hope that we're going to one day be able to leap into it. That is really no way to actually think about it. Well, that's an interesting point you make. I was just going to ask, you know, the African Development Bank,
uh, Fashionomics Initiative, I think late last year, early this year, focusing on Africa, trying to establish uh, platforms, uh, grow the textile sector, specifically try to support the movement of of, uh, textiles, clothing across the continent, uh, has many trade fairs or is establishing trade fairs um, and and, and I suppose... Platforms where people can communicate from from buyers to seller. Their focus, on the other hand, however, happens to be specifically, and however, happens to be specifically on the fact that our economies are kind of structured primarily in the SME space. So what they're trying to do is is is, is fund and and support. SMEs that are most likely going to be job creating uh, entities and not necessarily create uh, uh, large factories with big machines but from the potential that you're describing to me it looks as though particularly if we wanted to be Richmonds of the world one would want to industrialize quite quickly and want the big business which do you think is the better path for us to take? Look, I think this is the interesting part you know um, as we were discussing right at the beginning we have lost a, a huge part of our base not everything has left. Um, remember, we had these factories before. We had these skills, you know, uh, these seamstresses and all of this. So usually what you want to do, of course, is to build on what you already have. So it is not as if actually in South Africa in particular we would be starting from absolute scratch. But it's also true that, you know, there are parts, for example, in East Africa where people are already doing quite well, in, you know, in manufacturing shoes. We know quite mm. well there's already some things that are happening in the suit. So that actually what do you then use that as a base to develop even further than to pretend as if we're actually starting from scratch. We already have a lot of uh, positivity, for example, in jewelry design uh, uh, development, say that um, many of our firms have been lots of training. We know we've got um, jewelers here that could rival any internationally. All of these things are things that already exist. What we need now is a focus on scaling that up and making sure that we bring in all of this. So I think that actually it isn't also certainly a a thing where we're going to bring about, you know, huge factors, because actually that takes Mm. us back to the idea of facts, you know, of of such But actually that we are doing what we would call um, SME. What kind of international brands um, actually would have, you know, the kind of scalability that you might look like, you know, you're exporting one thing right across the world. You might actually continue and continuously to be quite niche in some ways, but at the same time to have enough scale to create the right kinds of jobs at the right kinds of level. These are the kinds of jobs that are not only are we, um, you know, producing quality products, but Thanks. also producing what many people have been saying, quality jobs. You know, we often talk, for example, about how our our gold and our diamonds are sold outside the country and then yes. they come back. Beneficiated Exactly. Yeah. Why are we not actually investing much more in that? The other day I was listening to radio and people were talking about some of the money that we spent on uh, on leadership uh, in this in the design space and that actually young people there are not actually getting um, a lot of the skills that they're supposed to get or are actually invested in doing things for international firms. And I think a lot of it is how do you make sure actually that you drive those initiatives in a way that actually is much more productive and brings us the kind of value that we need. And we need um, different kinds of structures, as you would. And not in a way that government is, is doing it, but government is actually lending a helping hand to the many people who are clearly already are in this, who are learning a lot, but they're saying, look, they're struggling to get the right kind of industrial support from the government, because there's a lot of it already happening. What you need now is to make sure that you support it properly and to scale it properly so that we can actually bear the, you know, bear the benefits of how we can do this. Because some of the South Africans will say, look, I can't find the skills of South Africa, right. and therefore I will, even though I have a high-end product, I have to take it out and have it manufactured in China. Right. This is a huge loss because obviously 
there's cost to transportation to China and back, whereas actually that is something that we should be actually using it as a benefit to keep things local. And sometimes uh, the skills argument is not entirely uh, a fair one. Sometimes it really just is about cost, isn't it? I mean, again, not, not, not to push back to the beginning of the conversation, but the point around labor, even skilled labor might be more, I suppose, uh, productive from, from an Asian perspective, more highly skilled labor in the luxury space than you might find here in, in, uh, in South Africa, um, it, it yeah. seems. The- yeah, there's no doubt about that. Uh, but again, it is about how we actually um, make sure that it actually works. Remember, as I was saying, that we connect it to a number of things. Because it's not enough to just say, look, uh, we're just going to actually go out there and compete, I don't know, with Prada or Burberry. Because those things already exist. But to say, we are adding things that would not be found anywhere else because they would be distinctly, you know, South African. And obviously, also at the same time, creating those local brands that have local affinities. Because that's what we tend to buy when we go overseas and we buy these things. Right? We are buying a particular brand that has a particular origin um, and we care about that. And I, and I, I, I would quote some, um, some research in the article that people are actually getting closer and closer to saying, for my money, I want to spend uh, paying for fair, you know, for fair trade, making sure mm-hmm. that these things are actually working, and I want to buy local. These things are quite important in the hands, um, uh, in the in the sorry, in the minds and hearts of consumers, and we haven't done a lot actually to play into a number of those uh, opportunities that we already have um, in South Africa. And the money, and much of the money, and the of the money that we spend um, on things like you know, buy South Africa and um, and uh, proudly essay and those kind of things. So. To that point, I mean, you mentioned earlier on, uh, as you rightly said, there have been a number of uh, policy uh, shifts that have been supportive, but a lot more could be done. What are the key policy interventions from an industrial or a trade perspective uh, that you would like to see come to, the, come to fruition to support the people who are trying to connect skill to product, connect manufacturing uh, to, to um, you know, trade links even? Yeah. One of the interesting, uh, important parts is that we in this country like to talk about uh, these uh, economic zones, right? Mm. And the economic zones are something that we tend to uh, actually put aside for international investors. So when we say we talk about an economic zone, it's something that we think an international investor should be interested in because, uh, you know, where they are actually, pre- you know, preferential treatment, whether they're talking mm. about taxes, mm. um, you know, uh, investment in, uh, the government invests in, in, in infrastructure that makes it better to do. These economic zones actually could be done for South African investors, South African uh, business that is interested in actually starting up um, and actually molding and grooming South African businesses in the manufacturing sector. So, so that actually these are things that are available to locals, so that when locals gather together and say, look, this is something that we want to do, then they can find spaces that allow them um, some uh, preference and some advantage to be able to actually bring this thing to fruition. So as I say, instead of them being, um, you know, if it, they, thinking that it's cheaper to pay transport costs to go to China, that that is part of actually saying, look, we will save these transport costs. We will mm-hmm. help you with, um, a, you know, a favorite taxes. We'll make sure that, you know, um, we give you some uh, incentives in terms of um, labor as you build and nurture yourself. And then, of course, over a period of time, you're expected uh, to get onto your feet and find more cost-effective ways to build, to, uh, to, to, to run your businesses. But it is about actually making sure that you assist the industry to get on its feet. Because as we say, the things that hurt us really, really badly um, in the early 2000s uh, in the manufacturing sector is that 
we, the, you know, um, you know, our industries are made to compete unprepared right. uh, in terms of technology, in terms of infrastructure, and found people who had already invested quite heavily um, in manufacturing and making sure that they were efficient and effective. And our people were not particularly ready um, for the competition. Now you want to be first to be able to put them in a space where they can be ready for competition. And then once they are ready, then you, of course, open the doors because that's always the right thing, right, to allow for competition uh, and to allow for people to, um, to do that. And to help put together, actually, uh, and I think this is where we failed as well, a, a, a regulatory environment that is not hurtful. One of the things that I, um, we, I, I, I visited one of the factories here that manufacture fabrics, mm. um, particularly these Shwesha fabrics in East London. And one of the interesting things that they are saying what is said for them and is destroying their business is that they are seeing cheap um, Hong Kong, as we call it, um, <laughs> fabrics coming from uh, um, from areas like places like China, which is not the same quality, which is not the same branding, but is allowed to and allowed to go through the customs uh, borders in South Africa because um, our, our borders are not strong enough to stop. Um, um, you know, dumping like that, that hurts local industry. This is something we have to be very, very strict about and focus on because, of course, it's not real competition when, you know, South African design and talent is competing um, with fake from um, places like China. We've got to be able to close those gaps so that actually um, local industries can thrive without being destroyed um, by fakes actually making it through the borders. Um, and I, I think cha- that's a lot of the stuff. Yeah. That's a very fair point, but may I challenge that? So, one of the key areas that I really loved about your report was really, as you've mentioned now, speaking about people wanting to buy local and who are becoming more discerning, was the increasing discernment of a consumer, a consumer who wants organic products or, or uh, natural products in their in their clothing, um, is far more discerning about quality. Surely that East London producer is not competing for the same client who is going to buy the quote-unquote Hong Kong clothes, uh, fabric that is not of the same quality. Yeah. But that's, hard, that's exactly hard to tell, right, because I think that's exactly the point. Because I suppose in one instance, you know, people will say, for example, well, I can tell a real from a fake Louis Vuitton bag. I think very few people can actually tell. I mean, those who say they can tell, actually, they'll struggle to tell. And I think this is where the problem is. Because in some ways, where your consumer is discerning, mm-hmm. And then suddenly, before the before the um, something else is so that's actually cheap, and Hong Kong comes, then of course they walk away from that product because suddenly it is no longer what they were trying to buy. Not right now, they are actually buying a sweatshop product that they don't want to, and that's the thing that destroys it. So my point is exactly that: that you know, you go and say, look. I really like. Uh, you know, uh, Ladua by Michael, so it's such great quality, it's great prints. But of course, people are buying high end, and there's something, there's a premium to that. And of course, if you suddenly, the, all of the, you know, side streets are selling Ladua by Michael, for which you would pay top dollar or top brand, and somebody else is now buying it for cheap because it's actually made its way through our borders, having um, been manufactured in China, that actually harms the local industry and the local designer. And that actually has been working very, very hard to build a local factory and local produce. So that's what I'm saying. So it is about actually, if you are discerning, you're not going to keep buying Microsoft. If suddenly everything that we're buying is now being sold for cheap. And I guess Microsoft is now finding out that if I was <laughs> buying stocks from him uh, at a very expensive price um, that gets delivered to me, then suddenly it's available on mass um, at cheap stores. And it's not about the same product I've been buying because people were actually buying that sort of high-end exclusivity in many cases. Okay. So we want some regulatory firmness 
uh, we'd love some uh, some economic development zones. Any other intervention that you'd like to see? Yes. I think, you know, I mean, and, uh, we're still talking about regulation. As I said, you know, one of the things is that because, of course, we, are, we, we pride ourselves of design and we are thinking that, you know, there's more we can do on design. There are some things that have happened. Uh, you know, so, you know uh, foreigners come to South Africa to buy our gold, right? Mm. And they will actually have preferential uh, treatment in terms of what they import from other countries that they don't themselves have. So, for example, if you don't have gold in China, you mm. might be able to allow it to import it um, at, uh, at preferential taxes so that Fair you enough. can actually improve on it and export it. We need to be able to do that perhaps even with say, you know, uh, Ghanaian fabrics that can mm. be allowed to come to South Africa at preferential rates, so that actually it's not that expensive to actually then add value to it. Same thing with perhaps Indian uh, fabrics or European fabrics that we are not making here as we actually try to develop uh, our own capacity to, you know, to design and develop fabrics that we don't have here. All those kinds of things are necessary. And I think there's been some, um, and it is not to say that there has, we haven't seen some of these interventions being done there um, yes. with, the, with the DTI. It's those things that we need to push. I think the most important thing we're going to have to do is to sit down and really almost develop a blueprint of how we're going to go about this, you know, to get in, into the room. You know, designers, thinkers, uh, you know, the kinds of people that have the experience and the know-how to say, how do we make sure that everybody can get into the room and put together a blueprint of how we actually go about this and how long it will take us to achieve the best outcomes, who do we need to collaborate with, mm. and then to start to make it. Because I think all societies that have been very successful haven't just talked about this in the way that we are, you and I are talking about it, but have actually done something to put people and bring people into the room of and course. structure plans that will actually work um, and be able to actually monitor and fail and try again and make sure that at the outside, at the output, we have actually achieved um, what we had always intended to do. And I think that's what we haven't been able to yet do um, in terms of many of the plans that we want to see when we want to create, with, when we are thinking about industry and employment and growth and production and all the goodies that we want to achieve. And what are some of the good uh, policies that you've seen come through? So we, that we could complement with these three uh, suggestions you make. So that Look, if, I mean, if I'm listening yeah. at home and I want to know what I can take advantage of at the DTI. Or- sure. Yeah. So, for example, the IDC has um, said, look, they have um, intervention to actually help people. People like Microsoft who have benefited in this way. Um, I think there's a number of other designers that have been benefited from sort of uh, programs that are allowed in terms of financing to say we will finance these people, mm-hmm. but it hasn't been um, entirely successful because I suppose they are, um, they are missing lines here. Uh, issues of markets tend to be a very big thing that actually sometimes we find, we find feds rather than to find structure. So you might find, I mean, um, not to prejudice much, uh, uh, much also again, so he goes and he is very well supported, but he is only one person that something that may not have, uh, you know, as we see now, you know, it may be something that if it continues, may not actually be a base for an entire industry because right. it's only one kind of thing. So we need to be able to also to move forward in terms of actually just sort of sourcing and funding feds or very fashionable prints right now to actually a much broader structural um, kind of investment into uh, into the sector. So. Fantastic. Really fantastic insights there from Clinty Pai, economist and founder of Nascent Advisory. We need to broaden our support advisory. We need to broaden our support to get into economic development zones. Regulatory environment needs to improve and some preferential rates for buyers that are importing in South Africa.